appreciate that, Ron. Thank you. Um, man, I'm excited to be here. I love it, getting to preach. I've had a pretty busy week, um, all sorts of things. But when Greg asked me, he's like, hey, Scott, would you like to preach on the 30th? I was like, well, of course. I don't want to miss out. I don't, I don't get to preach at my church very often. So I definitely wanted to come here. And it's just an honor and a privilege to get to be here before all of you. Anytime I get to share God's word, I try to challenge myself with something a pastor once said. He told me, always preach like it's the first time and the last time. You know, and so um, I'm a little tired, but I'm hoping I can, I can still honor, honor that this morning. So um, I was excited, like I said, to accept the opportunity to preach this morning. But what I didn't realize was the passage that Pastor Greg gave me. Um, you see, there are some texts in the Bible that are this, you know, these, these monumental moments of inspiration. And it uplifts people and gets them really charged and hype and excited you know, afterward, people will come up and, and they'll thank you, say, hey, that, that really ministered to my heart a lot. That meant a lot to me. Thank you. You know, or maybe they're crying. I even had one person, I was at a church over in Missouri, and he comes up and, like, answers a call to, to, be, a, to be a pastor. I was like, how exciting is that? No, that's not me. That's God. But it's really fun to get to preach those kinds of messages. Now, I believe that all scripture is inspired by God. It's written by God. It's useful for correcting, for teaching, for showing us right and wrong. But this morning, we're going to focus on a very specific passage that's kind of daunting for me. It's kind of intimidating. It's a challenge to handle a text like this one because of its particular contexts, um, content. There's this show on Netflix I was watching with my daughters, and um, only watched a couple episodes. It was cool, but um, it was a little stressful. The show was called Death by Magic. And it was about this cool, like, magician guy, kind of mysterious dude. And he would go around researching all of these famous magicians and their most dangerous acts they ever did. Specifically, he would look for the magic acts or illusions that led to the death of that magician. And then he would try to repeat it. And so it was this crazy thing. There's all this tension as you see him repeating an act or this, or this illusion that got another man killed. Often he was able in his research to identify the reason why, you know, a lock was wrong or someone dented a bolt or something of that nature. But the point is he was doing something very, very dangerous. Now, it wasn't really as scary as I make it out to be. There was two seasons, so we kind of figured he must, he's probably going to be okay at the end of this one. But this morning, we're going to be looking at a text that when it was first preached before an audience, it led to the man's death. And of course, just like in the TV show, I find myself before an audience preparing to preach the same truths that Stephen taught 2,000 years ago hoping that I also won't suffer the same fate. Let's pray first. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for making it sharper than any double-edged sword, that it pierces to the core. God, thank you for correcting us in a spirit of love, not wanting any of us to perish, but that all would come to a saving knowledge of you. Lord, grant us a humble heart this morning. 
to be challenged, to seek the innermost parts of our being and reveal to us, God, the impurities, the weaknesses, the vulnerabilities of not surrendering more control to you. Lord, as we hear your word this morning, transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to go through a big chunk of scripture, all right? Um, you don't have to stand because we're going to hit, as a lot. We're going to go in Acts chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 30. So if you have your Bible with you, Acts chapter 7. you got a phone, you can just Google A-C-T-S and 7 and you'll find us. Or right behind me. So here we go. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel had appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, this is going back to Stephen, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea. Remember, it was, it was parted in half. And in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us the Ten Commandments, right? Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol. It was that golden little cow. But God turned away, or sorry, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. They made their own God and were worshiping it. But God turned away, and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. And that was, host of heaven doesn't mean God. That means all the false gods that they thought believed lived in the sky. The false sun god, the false moon god, the false air god. They, they, gave, they worshiped all these different face, false gods. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, false god, and the star of your god Raphan, false god, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, the tabernacle, right? Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. 
So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. David wants to make a home for God, not just this tent. But it was Solomon, David's son, who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And then we see Stephen really laid on thick. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, just as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. So we've now reached the final climax of Stephen's entire message. If you've been with us um, on Sundays during this entire series, you might remember Stephen beginning his message with a reference to Abraham and then Joseph, these two really important guys. Now in our section today, Stephen is referring to Moses and the temple. All of these elements have extreme significance in the minds of his audience, his Jewish audience. These were the defining leaders and the characterizations of the Jewish faith at the time. Moses was very much considered a messianic figure. People looked to Moses as truly the rescuer, the redeemer. I mean, when before Moses had anyone stood up against the most powerful country in the world, Egypt, and said, let my people go, and we won. I mean, even now, or even before now, back then, people were like, yeah, the Messiah is going to come, this great military ruler. He's going to overthrow the Romans. We're going to be kings. They were still looking for this Moses-type figure to overthrow the government. Yet Stephen decides to pile on more depth when he concludes his message with his scathing accusation of his audience. You stiff-necked people, you're stubborn. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears. Even the very core of you stands against what God has called us to, is what he's saying. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And here's a funny thing. You know, sometimes with, you know, um, in marriages or dating relationships, we get really fired up. And we're like, you never take out the trash. And you're like, that's not true. I did it two weeks ago. Like, we exaggerate. The Bible is not one for flippant speech. When Stephen decides to say, you always resist the Holy Spirit. He's not making jokes. He's dropping more accusations. You're not even following the Spirit of God. And then regarding Jesus, the righteous one, says you betrayed him and murdered him. That's a big thing to say when he's on trial. The question that we need to answer for ourselves this morning is this. What can I learn from the mistakes of these early church leaders? 
He's not speaking to Gentiles. He wasn't speaking to Romans. He wasn't speaking to a crowd of dirty sinners who would be easy to pick out. He was speaking very much so like I'm speaking now to people who know God, yet they stood, they stood guilty. You always resist the Holy Spirit. How do we prevent ourselves from falling guilty of the same accusation? So the first thing we're going to see, I'm going to unpack a little bit of what he's doing because Stephen kind of gave a sermon already. So it's kind of funny to preach a sermon on a sermon. So, but I just want to unpack a little bit of what Stephen was trying to say so we can understand where he's coming from. And then I'm going to come back and make it clear of the application for us today. So the first point that Stephen was making is that the law is unable to save. So he was speaking to the law's inability to save. The Mosaic law, if you do X, Y, and Z, you're good. You're going to go to heaven. People believe the law could save them, following the law, all the rules. It's important to be reminded of, reminded of the purpose of Stephen's speech. He'd been falsely accused of, and this is from the Bible, never ceasing to speak words against this holy place and the law. That was the accusation that false witnesses had been brought to testify, and Stephen was arrested, brought before the Sanhedrin. All the leaders, they had this governmental structure, all the leaders of the church were like, okay, that sounds pretty blasphemous. Ironically, Stephen's at a point where he's going to address both of these claims while simultaneously directing the leaders of the Sanhedrin to accept Jesus as the Messiah. When Stephen refers to Moses in his speech, he's doing two things. Moses was at first rejected, a subtle parallel to the rejection of Jesus. Next, he quotes Moses saying that God will raise up a prophet like me from your brothers, another hint toward Jesus. Stephen is doing everything he can to further validate the claims of Jesus as the messianic son of God in whom salvation is found. The difficulty here is the Jewish leadership holds such an adherence to the law, a sense of pride that it's nearly impossible to imagine them surrendering their stranglehold on salvation through the law. See, that was job security for them. I mean, if you look at any of the, like, uh, the, the weight loss people and have all their little plans. Actually, okay, I don't know. There's this movie, Legally Blonde. You ever seen that one? She's like, I don't know, I can't remember her name, Elle Woods. I can't remember the actress, Reese Witherspoon. And she's talking to this girl, and she's on trial for murder for killing her husband. And she talks to her, and she has to get the alibi because she's like, no, I didn't kill my husband. She's like, well, where were you? Because everyone says they saw you. And she's like, no, I wasn't. She's like, where were you at? She's like, well, I was getting work done. She's like, what do you mean getting work done? She's like, I went to the plastic surgeon to like, you know, lose some weight. She's like, but all of your videos, you're like thigh exercise, blah, blah. She's like, no, I know I'm a fraud. She was so afraid that if people found out that all of the stuff that she was doing, she would lose all of her business, all of her reputation, everything. The leaders of the Sanhedrin made their income, made their money, made their career, the reputation on being the best leaders and upholders of the law. You want to learn how to get to heaven? You better walk like me. You want to learn how to get to heaven? You better follow all the rules like me. Constantly throughout scripture, if you read through the stories of Jesus' life, you see him calling them out. He'll heal a guy on the Sabbath, and they're more worried that he broke the law than excited about an act of God in their presence. The law became their God, and Stephen is trying to dismantle that. There's a better way. 
And so we notice Stephen next attacks this sentiment as well. In verse 39 and 41, he paves the way for Stephen's next argument. Because when it comes to upholding the law, what Stephen's trying to say is, you ain't that great at it. From the very beginning, you failed. He even brings up the lowest part of the uh, Jewish history, which is the exile to Babylon. When God was so disappointed with all of the idolatry, their failure to follow even the most simple rules, thou shall have no other gods other than me, that God sent them into exile in another country, Babylon. Something they would be so ashamed of. From the beginning, the people of God failed to obey Moses and the law. Stephen's intention for bringing up all this history is to imply that things haven't changed much right now either. When he says, our fathers refused to obey him, he's making a personal connection here. By ripping the band-aid off the status quo, there's going to be some offense taken. But the positive greatly outweighs the negative. You see, at this time, people were still looking to the law for salvation, right? But the law cannot save. It only reveals the need to be saved. So I'm grateful for the law because it shows me how much I need Jesus. But the law doesn't save me. That's why we have Jesus. I stand condemned by the law. I'm not perfect. Paul makes this clear when he comes on the scene in Acts chapter 13. He says, and by him, Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So here's our application I want us to take to heart. God is merciful toward... (laughs) God is merciful toward... Toward hardened sinners. There is mercy for even the hardest of hearts. You see, Stephen's speech marks the third time that the Sanhedrin had a chance to hear about the righteous one, Jesus, and to repent, right? There's 70 people on this council. Peter was arrested two times already in Acts chapter 4 and 5, and he preached to the leaders about Jesus, the same leaders, this is what Peter said, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. If God had given these men even just one chance to repent, that would have been more than they deserved. But instead, God allows three different occasions for the men who crucified Jesus to hear the good news, to hear the gospel and repent. They get three chances to get to stand in front with the disciples telling them the truth. How willing are we to see even the most hardened of sinners come to repentance? Do we reflect the heart of Jesus and Stephen who pray for the very people who persecute us? Or are we more similar to Jonah and his bitterness that God would allow the vile people of Nineveh to repent and be saved? We must exercise and invest in an evangelistic attitude that creates space for the hardened sinner to repent. If you are only looking to share your gospel message with those most likely to repent, then you got the wrong gospel. 
Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. First, let us rejoice that God saves even the hardest of hearts. Second, let us repent if we are guilty of puffing up ourselves on the law and selecting who gets to hear the gospel. Moving through, here's kind of the next thing I want to show us. The temple's inability to save. So first, Stephen attacked the law, right? The law's inability to save. Now we're looking at the temple's inability to save. As Stephen moves closer to the finale of his speech, he selects his next target. The inappropriate reliance on the temple. In verse 44, Stephen is referencing the tabernacle, the tent of witness. The tabernacle is where the Spirit of God inhabited during the many years the Hebrews wandered in the wilderness. Of course, David and Solomon come around and the temple is built for God. When Stephen makes a pretty simple observation here about God not living in just a single house or a temple, he says even the earth is like a footstool to him. We might miss the impact of this claim historically because we modern-day Christians have the blessing of brilliant Bible teachers who've taught us to not think that God is only present and active in one location. We know that God can't be put in a box. But this is not the case for the Jewish leaders in Stephen's time. They firmly believed and taught that the deepest presence of God could only be experienced within the confines of the temple. There's even a special room called the Holy of Holies. That only one very special holy man was allowed to enter and be in the presence of God. This massive veil, beautifully ornate fabric separated us from God. Trips and pilgrimages were made to the temple every year because it was taught that only in these walls can you truly access the presence of God. I had a pastor... um, I sent him a little thing I was making. We do these prayer meetings at my church at Lake, and um, I had this little prayer that I wrote, kind of a prayer for our city. And he's like, Scott, I love everything you did, but I have a question about one of the things you wrote in this little kind of recited prayer for, for Pueblo. And I was like, yeah, what, 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 what's going on? He's like, well, you wrote this line here that says, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and be with us as we, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, yeah, yeah. He's like, Scott, you don't have to ask the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit's already there, buddy. The Holy Spirit's all around us. You don't have to give him a special invitation. You know, I think I was like caught, I don't know, maybe I heard in a song or something. But the theology is so much richer. God's presence is everywhere. There's no place, uh, I wish, oh, I don't think I saved it. Um, I think it's Psalm 139 where he says, Where can I go from the Spirit? If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the depths of Sheol, you're there. There is no place I can go where your spirit is not present. It's beautiful. That's one of the things when I first became a Christian when I was 20, most drew me to God is that he would never forsake me. He's with me always to the end of the age. I've always wanted like a buddy (laughs) to be with me and to know that God is with me all times. I love it. Even in his death, or sorry, this insistence on tradition that the the Pharisees were teaching, completely betrayed everything Jesus worked toward his, during his time on earth. 
Even in his death, he left another message. When the veil, the one I mentioned, when Jesus died, it was torn from top to bottom, revealing that all can access God. All mankind. The emphasis placed on worship at the geographical location of the temple has come to an end. This was another massive blow to the status quo of the Jewish way of life. To first attack the understanding of the law, and now to pile on the claim that worship in a specific temple location no longer mattered, or at least not as much as it used to. And we see this pattern through all of Stephen's examples, right? First, there's Abraham, who experienced God in Mesopotamia. Then Moses speaks with God through a burning bush in Midian. And then again on Mount Sinai. Even Jesus makes this truth clear when speaking with the Samaritan woman at the well. She said to him, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. There is a divide between the Jews and the Samaritans on which mountain was the most sacred and which one you're supposed to worship on. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Here it comes. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus is saying it ain't about the mountain, y'all. It's here. It's changed. I'm here. Jesus is saying everything is new. The kingdom of God is here. Repent. That was his message. Stephen is declaring a new way for worship to take place. And it would not be confined to the walls of a temple or the boundary of a city or mountain. In the same way, we don't have to worry about approaching a priest or a special pastor to access God either. But let's make this a little more personal. We don't have to have a special song or magic lights and fog or even a special altar call for God to work in the hearts of people. God is always at work. And we must not think that there is some secret remedy or process we can use to entice God to act according to our purposes. I didn't grow up in the church, and I'm only 33. I became a Christian, I guess, 13 years ago. And so I've read about all these great Christian leaders and great movements of God. But I was curious. I joined this little pastor's group on Facebook, which is already trouble. And it's a bunch of SBC pastors on Facebook who got way too much time on their hands, I guess. And I asked a question because I saw a lot of people posting this question. People would say, hey, anyone know a good revivalist pastor? I need a good revivalist preacher to come to my town. We're going to do a big old revival. And I'm like, why do you need a, Is that like a special job? Like, is that a special call? Like, is that like a, like, do you go to seminary for that? How do you become a revivalist preacher? <clears throat> and so I asked a question in this group. I said, is there anything special about a revivalist preacher that is better or more powerful than any given pastor preaching in the spirit of God on a Sunday morning? Is there anything more distinctive or, I don't know, effective about a revival service than any time the people of God come together on Sunday to worship? And it was interesting the responses I got, and, and someone gave me this cool history. They said, oh, well, really, the revival used to be about a celebration, almost this big party of all the great things God's done. And somewhere in the early 20th century, the early 1900s, there began to be a push toward, we know what, we need to get, we need to have some salvations here. 
just praising God, just celebrating God, is that we need to see some, some, save, some salvation. So all of a sudden, you started seeing, you know, false teachers trying to profit off of that. I saw some movie. I can't remember what it was, what it was called. But this guy was like a fake revivalist preacher. He'd roll into town, do all of his things. You know, he'd be like, oh, you can walk. And the person could walk. And he'd get a bunch of money. He'd leave town. And so we see some of that stuff. And I've always wondered. I'm like, and now my generation, if you go to like the really hip, cool church plants, you know, like the, the ones downtown and Denver and everything, we have all the lights turned off. We have the really cool lights. And it almost becomes like this emotional thing, you know, like you need Jesus. You really need him. And people are like, oh, I do, I do. Which is probably, could, could be true. I'm not trying to attack any of that. But I wonder if the motive is to somehow do all these things so that God will save, as if he wouldn't do it if those things were not present. I've sat in committee meetings with churches where they argued with a pastor because he wouldn't face the right direction. He said, if you're not facing the church, no one's going to come down to get saved. And I'm just like, well, maybe, but also maybe not. <laughs> I don't think God is waiting for someone to feet to be, I, I don't know. I'm, I, now I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the Bible a little bit. I'm speculating again a little bit of Scott here. But here's the thing. We cannot entice God to do anything. I think when Billy Graham was rolling through town, I think God was just ready to move. And Billy Graham said, yes, I'll go, send me. I don't think he did anything fancy. As far as I could tell, he just preached the Bible. Lots of people came. We must not think that we can find some secret remedy or process or formula. Here's the, here's the point I want us to consider. I want us to really challenge ourselves with. God wants your heart, not your habits. Now forgive me because I'm oversimplifying this point a bit just in hopes that he'll be more memorable. But God wants a deep, love-centric relationship with you more than he wants all of the religious responsibility you perform. God wants your devotion and surrender to him more than he wants your insistence on the tried and true formula. God wants your complete and total commitment to him more than he wants your efforts, your traditions, or your strategies. This is perhaps the hardest thing for any believer to learn, but it's also the key to freedom in Christ. You see, I often fall into this trap of thinking that if I'm not working at 110% of my best efforts, somehow God's calling on my life or his plan is going to fall short. I allow myself to operate in ministry as though it were a group project. And if I don't get my part done, God and I aren't going to get a passing grade. It sounds ridiculous when I say it like that, but... This illness is all too common in our churches. It's like this epidemic. Just consider how many times Christians have mistaken tradition for doctrine. I heard this story in seminary about a group of Baptist missionaries who braved a difficult journey through the jungles of South America. They're trying to reach this, un, this unreached people group, this tribe up in the mountains like the Andes. After several weeks of trying to reach the tribe, the missionaries gave up. The reason? They couldn't carry the pipe organ through the jungle. How are you going to have church unless we got the organ? You can't have the Holy Spirit moving unless you're hitting them pipes. How easy it is for us to get caught up in our favorite traditions. Again, I'm only 33, but I'm starting to, <laughs> y'all are going to laugh at me. I'm starting to sense that reluctance to change 
I used to buy my music with iTunes and CDs, but now I have to pay every month like 15 bucks for a subscription. And if I don't pay it, I lose all my songs. And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. I'm going to keep buying CDs, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, man, if I was 85, I bet I'd be pretty, like, pretty grouchy. I don't want to change. I don't want to be irrelevant. I want things to still work out the way that I like them, the way that I've known them, to be my way, especially the way that I've done it. We have a youth pastor named Trey. I do this like he's young. He's 21. I'm 33. <laughs> a youth pastor named Trey. And it's funny because he's doing things in ministry a little bit differently than I would. And we're only about 10 years apart. And I'm like, well, man, you know, when, when I... I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm turning into my dad. (laughs) I'm like, wow, it it happens that easily. What's scary is that churches will split in half over these kinds of things. When Stephen said, we don't need the temple anymore for worship because God is everywhere, rather than rejoice at the news of this new revelation, people freaked out. They feared the loss of preference and the loss of control. It's rare that churches will actually split over doctrinal issues. Usually things like prayer or, you know, the Trinity or worshiping Jesus is, is pretty well agreed upon. Like, we got that down. But if we start talking about what color to paint the children's room, or should we have a piano or a keyboard, sometimes we forget to submit to God first. And instead, we let our preferences become our priorities. God and his power to save is not confined to a special color of paint on the walls or a certain brand of chair or pew. There are thousands of people surrendering to Jesus all around the world on any given day. Some of them are in caves. Some of them are in huts. And it's not because they have a pipe organ and a professional vocalist singing, I surrender all. It's because our Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And through him alone... With nothing else added, we can always come to God. It's beautiful. May we use our strategies, our ideas, our materials, our curriculum, our instruments to stir the hearts of people. But may we never confuse where the power is coming from. It's always God. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, to get people saved. And there's freedom there, y'all. If it's an instrument, you better be buying the best, nicest instrument that, can, that money can buy because otherwise people might not get saved. You better make sure everything works perfectly. You better pick out that paint just right. Prussian, blue, or whatever. I don't know. They have all those crazy names. How do you know? You get too stressed. You get into fights. And frankly, if I was Satan, I don't need you to hate God. I just need you to forget about him arguing over things that ain't that ain't it and this brings us to the final section of Stephen's speech it's perhaps the most harsh words that he will use against his audience but I don't think he's intending to be malicious but instead to correct a deeply seated misconception a misconception that every person on this planet has been guilty of at one point in their life misunderstanding Jesus the Sanhedrin rejected Jesus Many of us rejected Jesus, or some people are simply unaware that he even exists. Stephen has been establishing two primary elements in his case that Jesus is God's new revelation and the promised Messiah. First, Stephen is confirming that in Jesus is the fullness of God and that the presence of God can exist beyond the temple. 
and it exists in Jesus. In just these two truths alone, we have sufficient justification to surrender our lives to Jesus. The veracity, the truth of his teachings, and the fullness of his deity as God incarnate. Stephen is completely flipping the script on the Jewish leadership of the day, dismantling everything they have built their lives upon and destroying every tradition that distracts from the truth of the gospel. And the craziest part is that is exactly the kind of change we all need in order to be saved from our sin. There was a time in my life when I was actively trying to change my life, change my habits, and change my patterns. I felt trapped in this cycle of anxiety and, and selfishness and dead ends. I searched through self-help books. I tried asking for secular wisdom, but nothing seemed to bring the transformation I yearned for. Nothing except when I began to put my trust into Jesus. It was a process. It took some time. But how cool is it that for so many of us, that's our story. God was patient with our hard hearts and did exactly what we needed to see him. For some of us, that, made it, that might have occurred before we were even 10 years old. For me, it wasn't until I was 20 years old. But no matter when God brings us into the light, we can always trust that he is acting in love toward us. And Jesus, as Stephen was declaring, is the greatest expression of God's love for you. We deserve the cross and infinite separation from God. But Jesus takes our place, takes your place, not because you earned it, not because one day you would prove that you were worth it, but because he's that good. Because he's that loving. It's his character that is unchanging, regardless of your circumstance, regardless of how far you've fallen, regardless of if you became a Christian when you were six and haven't shown up in church since you were 66. Jesus' love has never changed for you. It's perfect. No matter when God brings us into light, we can trust him, right? This week, let's challenge ourselves with God's mercy toward hardened hearts. Let's deepen our love for God rather than elevate our self-worth through empty religiosity. And let's continue to place our trust in Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word that brings light to the darkness. Holy Spirit, help us to take these truths to heart and transform the parts of us that we are unable to change ourselves. Lead us in paths of righteousness and give us the patience for even the hardest of hearts. Remind us and challenge us that no one is too far to be saved that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection is the redemption and power that we need to fulfill your calling on our life. God, please use your servants, each of us, not in any crazy, spectacular way that impresses the world, but simply 
patiently as faithful servants, fulfilling what you have for us today. And should we get to see tomorrow, God, grant us the grace we need to be faithful once more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.